The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. We're continuing our series in the Sermon on the Mount. And if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find, find them on the back tables. Feel free to grab one. And if you don't have a Bible at all, you are welcome to have that as a gift from us as a church. So let's say you're having a conversation at the water cooler, exchanging a few words with your coworker. And they say this, well, she had this pig and the pig's name was Lulu. And uh, it, was, it was this incredible thing because Lulu was out in, the, out in the pasture or whatever and the woman's tending to her lawn and then she has a massive heart attack and falls to the ground just screaming in pain. You know what Lulu does? Lulu the pig does? She, she gets up and she goes out on the country road. The pig goes out on the country road and just lays down in the middle of the road and plays dead. Lulu the pig does. He's laying there dead in the road until a car comes and stops and sees Lulu. And as soon as the car stops, Lulu gets up and like Lassie makes her way back to the woman. So the driver sees the woman laying on the ground and calls 911 for help. Your initial response. No way. That can't be true. So how does your coworker convince you that what he's saying is true without the aid of a smartphone or a tablet? Well, in 2016, he might actually say these words. I swear to Google, you're stopped in your tracks. There's no way now to refute what he's saying. It's online. It's documented. It must be true. Google has built up enough reputation and street credibility that no longer does someone need to bring God into this conversation by making a water cooler oath with God's name. The words, I swear to Google, might now suffice. But in the back of your mind, you're thinking, could, could that really be true? Do I really believe everything that I read online? I hope not. But you look anyway. You get online just to confirm that what your coworker is telling you about Lulu is the truth. And as you're reading about Lulu, you're distracted because you see at least five headline banners of another political figure, a picture of a political figure raising their right hand to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help you, God. And this article is all about how this politician's testimony was found to be false and what we as a people should do about it. And then you read below this article, post after post and pages upon pages with tirades for and against the person with words like, I don't care what they said under oath. I would vote for them anyway. Or it's about time we brought this liar down from their ivory tower. And within minutes, we go from not believing a coworker about Lulu to not believing anyone. We have become an untrusting people running through the filters of distrust and all of the, I swear to Google assurances. We have come to take everything said or written to us with a grain of salt. Nothing anyone says really can be trusted. Can it? But still, we try to convince people of the truth of our words by writing emails that, when printed, could take up three or four pages. 
We say to people, I'll be there at 11. And when we're 45 minutes late, we say, "Mm, we lost track of time. We use words to slander people outside of their presence and call it venting or informing. And we threaten our kids with empty words like, if you don't turn it around, you're going straight to bed. And after four or five rounds of power struggles, it's 10 p.m. And guess what? They're still up. Our words have lost their potency, their meaning, their power, their truth. Today's passage from Matthew 5, verses 33 to 37, continues Jesus' leveling the playing field for us as his words confront this very issue about our words. As we've covered over the past several weeks, Jesus has come to bring fulfillment to the true law of God and show people what life really looks like in the kingdom of God. And he says, there is no more room for pretend righteousness. Righteousness is show and tell, word and deed, heart and hands. What's on the outside is no longer an indicator of what's actually going on in the heart. A few weeks ago, we learned haters are murderers. Lusters are adulterers. And in this passage, he reminds us that the words of our mouth, just as the hate or lust in our hearts, have the power to reveal who we are. Let's read together from Matthew 5. Verses 33 to 37. This is Jesus speaking. Again, you have heard it that it was said to those of old. You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, For it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. The word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Life according to the kingdom of God which is found in the law of God, is a reflection of the heart of God. Let's say that one more time. Life, according to the kingdom of God, which is found in the law of God, is a reflection of the heart of God. So what do our words have anything to do with the heart of God? Everything. Because what God says is evidence of who God is. And what we say is evidence of whose we are. Genesis 1-3 marks God's first words. Let there be light. And guess what? There was light. This is not us. We cannot speak light into being. I can't walk into a room and say, let there be light, unless I flip on a switch or light a match. 
But God's words, as Tim Keller writes, cannot fail their purposes because for God, speaking and acting are the same thing. God's verbal actions are a kind of extension of himself. So to trust God is also to trust God's words. And what makes a faithful God is that every word, every promise, every oath made by God, he keeps and he fulfills because God is truth. And because the word of truth lives in us as believers in Jesus Christ, the words that come out of our mouth must also be true. Let's pray today that God would use this passage to help us not just be people who keep our word, but people who faithfully speak his word. Would you pray with me? Father, as we continue in this series, I've just seen you level my own heart. I say a lot. But what do I say of you? And so I pray, Father, that you would help us today through these fumbling words that I bring to allow your scripture, your word, to speak loudly and clearly in our lives today. Help us to understand what it means to use our words to reflect your character and your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what does faithfulness to the word of truth, the word of God, look like in our speech? I want to propose that Jesus in this passage wants our speech, the words which come out of our mouths, to say three primary things about God. The first, our God is holy. The second, our God is here. And the third, God is our head. First, our God is holy. Look with me at verse 33. Jesus says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. As we've seen in weeks past, Jesus is aware that there's been this perversion of the law going on. Check boxes of righteousness. External religiosity. Where are these perversions of truth coming from? Well, they're coming from the teachers and the preachers of the law who've been around basically since the law began. And over time, their distorted words of these preachers and teachers have penetrated into the hearts of a people who take what's being spoken to them and run with it. Why are they running with it? They're running with it because what's being taught is easy. Think about it. How many of us in high school or college would register for choir or art or gym because it was an easy A? The human broken condition is to choose easy, the easy button. And one thing the teachers of the law have made easier involved swearing. Not our contemporary understanding of swearing, although that does play a role in this but rather making oaths, raising a right hand. You see, we wouldn't have oaths if we didn't have lies. 
But because sin entered the world, the father of lies was working overtime at influencing people to lie. And what had happened was that no one was trusting anyone anymore. And in the Mosaic law, a holy God instituted oaths as a means of protection for his people in order to keep a limiter or a muzzle on the amount of lies which were being spoken. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses and the Lord writes, It is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. A person would swear by the Lord's name as a pledge of security to those listening around them that the words that they were saying were true. And oaths were restricted to really serious matters like murder trials or loans or property dealings. Anything that if lied about could seriously jeopardize a person or the nation's safety. And an oath, an oath, an oath basically involved two things. Number one, doing what you'll say you'll do. And number two, Affirming that what you're saying is true. Doing what you say you'll do and affirming what you're saying is true. This is indeed what makes God a holy God. A God set apart from other gods because he does what he says. And what he says is what's true. That's, that's too hard for us as sinners. We, we want an easier syllabus. What if I don't want to do what I say? What if I want to create the perception that what I'm saying is true, but I don't want people to discover that I'm lying? Well, the easy teachers of the holy law found a way to corrupt the law. And here's what they came up with. You don't have to do what you say you do. If you use certain words... Instead of worrying about taking the Lord's name in vain, they just changed the name. So that instead of swearing to God, you could swear by other things. And Jesus is calling out these old school teachers on their perverted practices of oath keeping through this passage. First, he's calling out those who say you don't have to do what you say you'll do if you use the proper oath or a formula of words. And in Matthew 23, Jesus sheds more light on what's going on here. He goes for the jugular with the teachers of the law and says this. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? I don't know if you're able to see the loopholes that they've created. What the teachers of the law have created is a cafeteria pick and choose system of accountability. And the heart of God's law has been corrupted. Swear by the gold of the temple. Big deal. Probably because it was profitable. Swear by the temple. No big deal. Basically, it would be like the difference between I swear to God. Big deal. And I swear to Google, no big deal. And Jesus throws out their distinctions. And he says, all of it is God's, whether the gold or the temple. 
So don't believe for a second that you can maneuver your way out of the truth or out of your responsibilities with the words you choose. Because again, God is holy. He does what he says he will do, and what he says is true. As God's representatives to a watching world, this inconsistency in their oath-keeping made them a people not of their word, but a people of their choice of words. There's a favorite scene in the movie that illustrates how we do put more stock or less stock in the words that we choose to use. It's the movie A Christmas Story. And Flick is standing at a flagpole. And Ralphie, his friend, is watching at a safe distance. And Schwartz, another one of Flick's friends, is taunting Flick to be a boy of his word and do what he says is true. You see, Flick believes that sticking one's tongue to a flagpole in sub-zero temperatures will not cause one's tongue to freeze to that flagpole. Schwartz is not convinced and begins using specific choice of words to emphasize the seriousness of the challenge that he's giving to Flick. Just read the script to you, Flick. Are you kidding? Stick my tongue to that stupid pole? That's dumb, Schwartz. That's because you know it'll stick, Flick. No way it'll stick, Schwartz. Oh, yeah? Flick. Yeah, Schwartz. Well, I double dog dare you, Ralphie. Now it was serious. A double dog dare what else was there but a triple dare you? And then the coup de gras of all dares, the sinister triple dog dare. And then Schwartz says, I triple dog dare you. Schwartz created a slight breach of etiquette by skipping the triple dare and going right for the throat. The weight of Schwartz's words was dependent upon his word choices and not his word itself. But a holy God, his words never change or become weightier based on what he says. Because everything God says is weighty because everything God is, is holy. And in our speech, we too are called to be holy, not to impress God, but to reflect God who resides within the heart of a Christian. So what does this look like in everyday life? We may have chosen the easier syllabus by becoming evasive with our choice of words. How many disagreements have we had with our spouse and heard us say these words? Well, I didn't say that. I think you heard me wrong. I, I didn't say that. I mean, that's not exactly what I said. And in an attempt to avoid being wrong, we insist our husband or wife has heard us wrong. Or we justify our language to get out of admitting guilt. I do this all of the time as a parent when my kids ask me, Hey, Dad, what are we going to do today? And I say to them, We'll see. Nothing can get me out of committing to something with my kids as much as these two words. We'll see. What about in other relationships? Let's grab lunch sometime. That last word, sometime, keeps us out of locking anything into our calendar. Let me check my calendar and I'll try to get back with you. 
the word try becomes our out. These examples diminish our integrity as a holy people. By carefully choosing our words to avoid responsibility or truth, we become a people who can't be trusted. And to be people of God who can't be trusted, the world concludes this is a God who can't be trusted. To instead be a set-apart, holy people, God is calling us to mean what we say and say what is true. Instead of creating these loopholes with our words. The more people know Christians as a people who say what is true and do what they say, the more they hear our lives say our God is holy. We need to allow God's spirit to govern our speech, particularly when it comes to direct communication. Saying what we mean, meaning what we say, not avoiding or evading responsibility by dissecting the conversation, but admitting when you're wrong. Pulling out our phone and saying, I'd love to grab lunch. When when are you available? Saying to our kids, kids, not going to be able to go to the park today. I'm sorry. As we speak directly, the people around us begin to build trust with us. And as the people around us build trust with us, guess what happens to the validity and reputation of God as a holy God? It grows. But not only do our words have the power to communicate the holiness of God, our words also communicate that God is here with us in our speech. Look with me at verses 34 and 35. Jesus says, But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Some believe that this passage is mandating that we never take an oath. The Quakers refused to put their hand on the Bible or take an oath in any way, shape, or form because it would violate the commandment Jesus is making in this passage. That may be a pretty strong overreaction to what Jesus is advocating for here. If God were to ask us never to take an oath because it was sinful, then what do we do with passages like Deuteronomy 6? Or passages when we see God make an oath with his people. It would mean that God himself is sinning or asking us to sin. And that cannot be the case. We see the Apostle Paul swearing in Romans 9 saying, I am not lying. My conscience bears witness with the Holy Spirit. Because oaths can have the ability to add authority and weight to what is spoken. So what is Jesus saying when he says, do not take an oath at all? He is speaking into the manner in which they are taking these oaths. You see, not only was there a cafeteria plan of words that you could choose to get out of oaths, there was also a hierarchy. Some oaths were more important than others. To swear by God's name was the highest level of commitment to a statement or a course of action. It was the triple dog dare. A notch down, swear by heaven. Notch down, swear by earth, and so on. And the lower down the ladder you went, the more a person could convince themselves that lying was safe because you were distancing yourself from accountability. Oaths were just becoming normal, regular part of everyday lives, what commentators called frivolous oaths. 
Oaths became common practice because oaths became a way of getting out of being busted for telling a lie. I remember doing this many times as a kid. Oaths became, for me, my go-to when I was convincing my friends that the whopper of a lie that I was telling them was true. I remember my friend Ryan and I were in the basement of my parents' house when I was about eight years old. I grew up in the Catholic tradition, and in one of our storage closets in the basement was what's called a sick call set. And inside the box was holy water for administering last rites to someone, along with a spoon that the priest could use to feed someone the communion elements on their deathbed. And we were curious kids looking through this box. And I grabbed the spoon in my hand, and in an effort to impress my friend, I said to him, quote, This is the spoon that Jesus ate off of. And he looked at me with extreme doubt. And I knew by his face that I was lying. So I amped up my efforts by getting louder and more insistent and said something like, I swear, Ryan, just, just ask my mom. My mom wasn't there to hear me. I used my mom as my go-to for swearing because I knew that swearing to God in that moment of deception was far too serious a consequence. And it was that same night that my mom received a call from Ryan's mom who said to her with the same disbelief, do you really have the spoon that Jesus used? My swearing in the name of my mom was a similar practice to what was going on for the Jews of the time when they swore by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem. It became a convenient way to not have to tell the full truth, to compartmentalize the truth into different spheres by using things instead of God to justify their words or their practices. But again, the more common this practice of swearing, the more dishonesty and irresponsibility that was going on among the people. And there was actually a quote from a strict religious group called the Essenes that said, he who cannot be believed by God without swearing is already condemned. And Jesus in this verse is saying, you believe that by this kind of swearing, by heaven, by earth, by Jerusalem, by Google, God does not hear because he's separate from these things? No. In all these things, heaven, earth, Jerusalem, Google, God is present. You can't compartmentalize what is being spoken because God is an omnipresent God. He's everywhere. So how does this translate into our lives today? I can think of many examples of how we compartmentalize our speech and convince ourselves that God is not hearing us or that God is here with us. We make exaggerated statements about things or people all the while believing that God's ear is not hearing what we're saying. How many of us would admit that the way in which we talk or joke with our coworkers or hunting buddies is different from how we would talk to our pastor? How many of us use exaggeration or superlatives like always, never, unbelievable, incredible, amazing to make our point seem all the more impressive while ushering out the greatness of God and exchange him for the smallness of a thing? I swear that fireworks display was the most awesome thing I've seen. Really? Awesome? 
Have you seen God? You've got to hear this band. I swear, they're they incredible. Incredible? Really? Have you seen God? We need to remember that God himself is here, there, and everywhere. And he hears every exaggeration or deception that's coming off of our lips. And like the 17th century monk, Brother Lawrence, we need to become more regular about practicing the presence of God in our day-to-day use of words. One way we can practice God's presence in our words and speech is simply through prayer. It might involve a conversation with God while you're having a conversation with a coworker at your workplace or your fishing buddy. A conversation with God as you're watching that fireworks display or hearing that talented band. Guide my words, Lord. Remind me you're here. It might look like a decrease in the amount of exaggerations we use about things. Instead of saying, that's awesome. We might say, I enjoyed that. Or even, God, you are awesome for what you made here. God hears our words and he delights in our acknowledging through our words that he's here. Not only can we say through our words that God is holy, God is here. Lastly, our words have the ability to communicate to a watching world that God is our head. Look with me at the last couple of verses of this passage, 36 and 37. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. To take an oath by one's head is a very dangerous and vulnerable thing. Because the head, in biblical language and metaphor, is the part of the body which represents supreme authority and status. When someone takes a vow by their own head, Jesus is warning his audience and us that we are communicating that we have the ability and the supreme power and the authority to do things we indeed would never be able to do, like determine our hair color or our eye color or our gender. We are taking the place of God and the place of his son, Jesus, who is the head of the church. And this was the scheme of the evil one from the beginning to steal headship from God. Eve in the garden knew that stealing headship from God would involve certain death. But the enemy, the father of lies, the evil one, who uses words to exaggerate, embellish, deceive, accuse, and condemn, whispered in Eve's thoughts and minds, eat it. You too can be like God. Don't let God be the head. You should be the head. She believed the lie, and we believe the lie. And the consequence is indeed death. We want to be the head, and in that decision, we are left to stand before a holy God on our own head, on our own merit, on our own resume, on our own words. Oh, no. But thanks be to God, that's not the end of the story. A holy God made a promise an oath, a solemn pledge that our attempt to steal headship and the guilt that would come from that, that that decision would be reversed. 
And he would use the power of not just words, but the word to do it. Because in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. The word of God. God in his grace upon grace has offered us his promised son to once again be our head. He came down to earth as the fulfillment of every promise God would make. He said what he did. He did what he said. And on the cross, he took all of our broken vows, all of our broken promises, all of our empties. I swears all of our I'll promise to get to it later. All of our I'll be better about spending all of our I'll stop drinking next week. All of our I'll never lie to you again. All of our I'll never look at those websites again. All of our broken promises. He took on himself and the consequence of our fatal decision to be our own head crushed, crushed Jesus's head. And there was an oath breaker crucified next to Jesus on a cross who said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus made a promise to him. And he makes that same promise to those of us who would place our trust and faith in Christ as the word of God. He says to him and to us, you too will be with me in paradise. That's a secure promise sealed through his spirit as a result of an empty tomb. Jesus is the only head whose promises are never broken because a man who is following God fully will never need to take an oath. His life will be the only word he needs to speak. Jesus is that man. The word who keeps his word. What he says he does. Who he is is true. There are four words that my kids can say to me that can cause me to cringe with conviction and with guilt. Do you promise, Dad? Dad, do you promise? Because I know the reason they're asking this is because I've broken promises with them through empty words. May God's word today make us a people of less words and true words. May our yes simply be yes. May our no simply be no. And as we answer with fewer and truer words, may our lives be a witness to the world of what is true, that our God is holy, that our God is here, and God is our head. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It undoes us, and thankfully, it promises not to leave us there. 
Father, as we see our broken promises, our exaggerated statements, the words that we have used that have not been a reflection of you, but rather been a reflection of ourselves. Father, we pray that you would indeed forgive us. Thank you for the word, your son, who dwelt among us and gave us grace and truth by living what he said and by doing what is true and by laying down his life for his friends. Greater love has no one than this. We thank you for the love that Jesus has showed us in correcting our broken promises and being the promise that we rest our lives upon. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.